0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to ZachCast. Today, we're joined by Kevin Shepard, founder and CEO of Verdunity. Uh, Verdunity is not your grandfather's planning and engineering firm. (laughs) They approach their work with the goal of fiscal sustainability. They do a lot of really great analysis for uh, cities across the country. We had the pleasure of getting to sit down with Kevin a few weeks ago on their Go Cultivate podcast, and we're really happy to reciprocate that and have him on ZachCast today. So, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit, uh, talk about why you decided to go out on your
1: own and try something different in this space. Yeah, man. Uh, it's good to, good to be on with, with you guys. Um, I, my background is actually civil engineering. Um, I got, uh, graduated in 94 from Texas A&M with a civil engineering degree, uh, did civil engineering. There you go, Patrick. Whoop. Uh, did, (laughs) (laughs) uh, did, uh. Did the civil engineering thing for the first uh, 17 years of my of my career, uh, you know, municipal paving drainage, water, sewer, site development. Um, and, and in engineering school, you're taught growth is good, concrete is good, expansion, you know, help our help our communities grow. Um, but you're not taught uh, necessarily about placemaking and the, the value of social interaction um, and especially uh, maintenance and how cities are going to pay to maintain all of this good stuff that that we build um around the the last recession 08 um i got uh, 2008 2009 i got offered the opportunity to interview for my former firm's uh national director of planning and urban design uh and i thought it was just kind of a i was like why the hell you want to talk with a, <laughs> with an engineer about planning and urban design but um Went up, interviewed, ended up getting the job. Uh, and so for the, the last two years uh, I was there, I was in a world of planners, architects, economists, um, and for a large architecture engineering firm, global architecture engineering firm, the planners were kind of a, a, a smaller group. <laughs> but um, but I got to travel around, and, and what, what I learned from that two and a half years was that no matter where I went, cities of different shapes, sizes, rural, suburban, urban, Um, you know, Midwest, West coast, East coast, very few of them had enough money to pay to maintain basic infrastructure. They were all struggling with how are we going to, how are we going to maintain everything that we have? Um, and then I would come back to North Texas here in Dallas and see us blowing and going even through the recession, right? We, I mean, we barely skipped a beat relative to, to most parts of the country. Um, and so in 2011, I said, you know, I'm, I'm learning enough working nationally, uh, we have an opportunity in texas to to take you know we're blessed with a lot of wealth philanthropic um resources like we've got to take this and and apply it to change the way that we're building our cities uh and so we started virginity back in april of 2011 it's been what's my aggie math nine years <laughs> uh, and so yeah. What we do now is, is hammer home that message of fiscal sustainability. And, you know, before you can get communities to do what I believe are more of, you know, quote, the right projects, um, you got to, you need to get them to understand the the fiscal impacts of the way that we've been doing things. So we, um, we always start with, with uh, fiscal sustainability and questioning, um, you know, helping cities look at where they are fiscally in terms of, of, being able to to pay for maintenance, infrastructure maintenance in, in particular, um, and then we push that into um, planning work, uh, infrastructure design work, um, you know things things of that nature. So, which I'm sure we'll we'll dig into. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, hey,
2: Kevin, this is sorry, Chad. Let me jump in there. Yeah, hey, Kevin, this is Patrick, man. I just wanted to, obviously, you know, we have kind of come across each other uh, in different aspects. You know, we do a lot of data analysis for cities, and and you guys are utilizing a lot of the that data analysis to really. Uh, to really jump into how cities are developing, um, and, and in Texas, I think one of the big things for y'all is you've done some kind of comprehensive and land planning work, and and kind of turned on its head. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the old way and the new way?
1: Uh, in in regards to comprehensive planning, land use, citywide land use planning. Or infrastructure, yeah,
2: or or you know, small development planning things like that. Um, Yeah, so we
1: do uh, we do what we call land use fiscal analysis, which and we focus on the relationship between the development pattern and property tax revenue and services paid for from the general fund or or by property tax revenue. We can get into other things with sales tax and hot tax and and some of those, but there's guys like you that are out there uh, doing that piece of it, so really focusing on the the nexus between d- the development pattern the, the things you build on the ground um, and the property tax revenue you're getting back from that that investment and does it does it pencil out or not and how big of a gap is that creating to be closed by sales tax and, and other sources um, we uh, we're not from an engineering perspective you know I don't like to go after a lot of large roadway expansion projects we we tend to focus on maintenance and how you can um, you know, maintain what you have, get more value out of what you have. Um, and then on the, the planning, you, you mentioned the incremental development side. Um, what we see from our fiscal analysis is that the, um, and, and there's no one size fits fits all here. There's no right or wrong pattern per se. Uh, but smaller lots, narrower lots, um, parcels that have vertical buildings, multi-story buildings. Uh, there's, there's, Basic things from our analysis that that show that those are the areas that um, generate the most property tax revenue per acre, um, and so it it when we were doing the analysis early on, it would be like this is great. We see we have a resource gap. Um, we can see that certain kinds of patterns do better than others. We would like to do more of the you know of, of the patterns that that generate more property tax for us. Um, and that gets into incremental development. And, and it's, you know, wh- who are the, de- the developers, the builders that can go in and build one building at a time or a, a small live work unit that maybe has a business in the front and an apartment in the back. Uh, and so there's there's a lot of cities that are trying to get more of that kind of housing, you know, to diversify housing stock and price points and get more workforce housing in their community. Uh, but there's conversations about density. We don't want density in our community. Um, you know, that brings traffic that brings um, the poor people. Uh, We hear a lot of different things, but when you can show the math behind it and show that if you can build a portfolio in your community of different types of of development patterns, you can actually generate more property tax revenue for your community without having to change the tax rate. And that's a really powerful discussion to have is instead of being, heck no, we don't want the density or we don't want incremental or small development. It shifts to, okay, we're we're in, but where can we put it and how can we design it in a way that, that fits with our community, which is a very different conversation than just fighting the battle of if you want it or not.
2: So the the question of density equals poor people, right? I mean, that's every city manager hears that and every suburban community that's out there that's mm-hmm. trying to change their development pattern. Right. So let's let's talk about that. Like statistically, data analysis wise, wh- what do you actually see in the real world? I mean, cities obviously can put standards on multifamily development to make them, you know, mm-hmm. more expensive, right? Or uh, to do certain things. I'm not saying that affordable housing is not a good thing. I'm just asking the question of, is is that a one-to-one? I mean, does it, does, do you see in your analysis that if you build multifamily, you're going to lower no. your median household income? I think
1: income? there's a, yeah, there's, there's presumptions out there that, um, you know, multifamily equals deteriorating property values. Um, It equals more crime. Uh, It's just, it's not true. Um, There's data out there that you can manipulate data to show that that is the case. But what we see in most cases, it's really, it's really not. It's, it's about where you locate it. You know, do you stick it off on the edge of town where there's nothing else around it? Or do you actually put that kind of denser development in your prime areas that have the walkable access to everything um, you know, so it's, it's a decision by a city to put it in your most valuable areas versus do you stick it out on the edge that that's probably the mm-hmm. biggest driver of, do you get something that, that actually creates value and creates place and, and gets your young professionals and your, your retire you know, your, your boomers that re- that are retiring. Um, cause there is a huge demand in North Texas for, um, across the country, but especially in North Texas for more diversified housing types and price points. Uh, we have so much of the typical single family, um, and still need more of that. Um, but we need more of the smaller stuff for, there's a lot of people that, that need those kind of, you know, smaller, more affordable units, uh, for different, for different reasons. But it's, yeah, it's more about location than it is just smaller, you know, smaller is less value, I guess. Does that help?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, when you talk about incremental development, um, you know, one unit at a time, one, one redevelopment piece at a time. That seems yeah. to be a lot more difficult, right? Just a lot more effort, right? Because you're dealing with many more players versus the way that we typically develop right now is you'll have a developer come in, buy a hundred lots, build a hundred houses at once, and it's done. So you've got one person to deal with. You've got one process that you're working through. And uh, we're just sort of used to that. Whereas an incremental approach, every single project is different. Everyone has a mm-hmm. new players and has... Something different about that, you know, particular project. It, it does seem like it's a lot more effort. Is that part of the reason why cities are hesitant to approach things that way, or is there something else
1: involved? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I do think there's more effort involved. Um, I don't know that it's more effort on the city's side, though. I think, I actually think it's it's more challenging from a developer standpoint to make things pencil out when you're looking at smaller projects. Um, a lot of it has to do with with zoning and building codes, and you know what you're allowed or not allowed to do. Um, something that, that comes up of a lot of the fiscal analysis work that we do is we'll <laughs> we'll we'll do you know we'll do our our land use analysis, and then we'll we'll show it by land use codes, by zoning districts, um, and every single place that we've looked at. Shows the same trend that the the smaller lots have the highest revenue per acre, and the the larger lots tend to go down. Um, but uh, and so we we always get this question of like, oh well, you know the the two zoning districts or the two smallest single family lots that lot sizes that you're showing, our code doesn't even allow those anymore. So our cities are kind of moving towards this place that we're coding out the most fiscally productive <laughs> development uh, that they that they have. Um, you know, Monty, Monty Anderson is a small developer that we partner with quite a bit. He's here in the Dallas area as well. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a, my feeling is there, there's a lot more people. Um, a lot of them are actually our age, uh, who are wanting to get into small development and maybe build a, you know, a unit as, um, you know, an investment type of project where they can rent it out, get some rental income. Um, or maybe you have someone that, that wants to run their business in the front and they want to live in the back or rent out the back. Um there's there's starting to be more demand for that. Um, but on the city side, you've gotta be more welcoming of that and kind of know where you want it to go because you do have to get some codes and things in in line to allow it. Um but you also have the the push from the larger developers that like you said, Chad, they they have their system, they have their I mean, they can crank that stuff out big and from a um, you know, big and fast and from a city side, um, you know, I could see that, that conversation happening. Too of, you know, we can work with one guy and get 100 lots, you know, all at once, or we can go deal with these, these, you know, individual folks and get, you know, 10 buildings and 20 units or something like that. So I I guess, um, you know, I could see where cities, smaller cities that have limited resources, they're thinking through that some.
2: Yeah, I have to ask the question on codes, because you kind of, you hinted at that a little bit. And uh, Chad knows this about me, but Kevin, we've never had this discussion. It's just a very interesting discussion to have. So building codes, yep. uh, fire code, building code, electric code, mechanical, you know, MEP. My, my big complaint over the years about those codes uh, has been that they're those codes are built by trades, right? So if you're talking about electrical code, you have all these electricians that come in a room and they create their own code. So therefore, the code gets more stringent over time because it makes their projects mm-hmm. more costly, right? And so it, it just raises the cost of that and we've seen that uh, discourage incremental development, right? It makes it more difficult to go into an older downtown area because the newer building codes are so substantially different than the older builder, building yep. codes. Now, some of that's okay. I mean, some of it's health and safety related. And and obviously, we've gotten better at getting out of a burning building than we used to from a code standpoint. But some of that is so difficult that it it, it allows those buildings to just sit there. And so how do you... How do you change that? Do you see cities that are actually going in and and trying to change those codes in older kind of historic areas or older downtowns to get that redevelopment?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a um, that's a great a great question, and that is a you know an obstacle to get to get over. Um, I AJ AJ Favre on my t- on my team is more of our code specialist on this, but, but there are, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, you know, I think, um, you're, you're right. Cause if if you, if you draw the line Mm -hmm. and your, your building inspector is saying, you know, you've got to hit all of these codes and it's across the board for every building, you are going to have some older buildings that nothing's going to happen because to bring them up to the current code all up front is just, that's an investment that a lot of people just can't make. Um, so what we see, um, in, in, the communities that are making some progress there is there's a, there's a partnership happening that there's acknowledgement on the city side that for a a small developer or a new business to to get into one of those buildings, um, there needs to be intent on their side that they know they have to get it up to the codes, you know, over some period of time. But there's also um, some appreciation from the city side that, hey, we'll, we'll give you a few years to do that. Let's get the absolute bare minimum, you know, life and safety things addressed um, and then you know give you uh, give you another couple years maybe to generate some revenue get your get your um get your business going and then you can start to get the the rest of it going Um, there's also some code tweaks you can do to go back to um to older building codes i don't know the exact terminology but there's some ways that some of the small developers can use to you know to get through some of that but it ultimately comes down to um city making a decision of you know how how hard do we want to enforce some of this stuff versus you know where where can we have some flexibility because you know the, the alternative is those buildings sit there, they don't get filled, you know, and, and you end up with a, a beautiful historic area that you know doesn't that the doesn't get the investment that you, you need versus with just a little bit of energy up front, right. you get them in there and activate it and then they take off. And then you can get them all back up to code. It's just that dynamic of someone that's going to go in and want to build a small a small building, maybe they have a, um, you know, maybe they have a business idea that hasn't been fully vetted yet. And so to, to ask somebody to go in and, you know, purchase a building or build a building, well, not, not, we're not even talking about building, but, but purchase an older building. Um, you know, when they haven't fully vetted their business idea, that's a, that's a huge risk that a lot of folks, you know, aren't willing to take that, um, you know, to flip that to an economic development incentive program. And there's a lot of cities that do have this, but, uh, a lot of your small developers and local developers will say, "Man, if our city would just take a portion of our economic development money that we throw at incentives to these big companies, and put it into supporting us, uh, you know, on these building uh, land or building uh, purchases or um, or retrofits, you know, it, it would go a long way." And for me, I, I I see a a city if you help invest in a building, um, you know, that that building's going to be there. And you know, at least the smaller incremental buildings we're talking about, that building's going to be there in your community for a long time. So, whether one business goes in and out, that investment from a city's standpoint is is going to stick. Versus some of these incentives we throw to these bigger companies that they come, they're there for fifteen or twenty years, and then they bolt, and then you're left with a big (laughs) a big box that's much harder to retrofit.
0: Just to piggyback on that, also, if if you don't allow that kind of incremental development, then what happens to those buildings? They're either going to sit there vacant, out of code. Uh, you know, or they're you're not going to have the investment, and they're still going to be out of code, right? So, what's what are you losing?
1: Yeah, and then you have money from the city side that you've got. Oh, we've got blighted, we got vacant buildings that you know aren't being kept up, and you know what do you do to to fill the storefront to make it look like something's there? Or you know, it, which that's a cost to it.
0: And you're spending money on code enforcement. You're spending money on policing and fire. Right. Right. oh yeah, there's definitely some trade offs there. Yep. Um, when it comes to incremental development, though, one One issue is that a lot of cities zoning uh, requirements like forget about the codes that they're using, but they have, uh, you know, setbacks and lot sizes and building sizes and building materials and all of these restrictions that don't necessarily allow you to change what is currently there. Is there is there a movement to sort of get away from some of that form based zoning or those more those types of zonings that are very specific about how a building should look to allow a little bit more flexibility?
1: Yeah, well, that's so form based is not necessarily the same thing as kind of what, you know, what you're talking about. But there's a um, there's definitely, you know, there's Euclidean zoning that separates things by land use saying, you know, single family has to go here. Industrial is going to go over there. We've done that for a long time. And that that I think is is a challenge um, in a couple of regards, you know, one, especially with regard to like single family, you can you can lock a neighborhood into one look, you know, and, and you build that to a, to a certain standard. And we see that with a lot of the suburban neighborhoods today of you, you, there's, there's just nothing you can do to, to retrofit that kind of neighborhood. And that's okay. And I think a lot of people that live in those kind of neighborhoods want that, right. You know, don't, don't mess with, don't mess with this. Um, then you have other parts of town that you do want to be able to evolve and add density and incremental you know, intensity over time. Um, but you, you know, you get into to allow that to happen. You're you're more looking into, you know, what's the what's the form? What's the it's more about the what I'll call the public realm or like, you know, when you're in the street, what the feel is. So that's where form based codes can help of saying, you know, we want to have the, the building up on the street you know, versus having a setback, you know, where you have the, the building way, way off of the property line um th- there's different ways to get at that but i think what the planners will say is you know we're we're trying to get to a place to um to guide the the look and the feel of this neighborhood that it, that allows or this area that allows it to evolve over time um without handcuffing the developers too much on exactly what they you know what they have to do in terms of um some of the uh, the other things that um it, it's the best way i could put it is in a single family type of neighborhood you want to have there, there's, there has been at least interest in setbacks and, um, you know, the, just the amount of separation between buildings and things like that, that, that are easier to, to standardize versus, um, you know, in the incremental side, when, you know, when you get in a downtown or a main street environment, the, the ones that are the most interesting do kind of have the quirky factor to them of the buildings don't all look the same and they're not all in the same place. Um, and that's what makes them interesting and, you know, makes you want to get out and, and walk around. So it's um, it's complicated, but I do think the a lot more cities are having that that conversation about how do we get these kind of places in our different communities, whether we're a rural place, a suburban place, you know whatever. Uh, and we, again, just to bring it back to where we started, you know, fiscal fiscal sustainability is is the reason that that I advocate for a lot of this stuff is um, a lot of the you know, a lot of the communities that we study, when you just one of the questions I like to ask is uh, cities is do you do you know, if you had to fix all of the streets in your town right now, do you know what it would cost? Very few cities can answer that question. I'm shocked. Even today, you know, eight years later, after I've been hammering on this uh, and others too, cities still don't know how much infrastructure they have that they're on the hook to maintain. And when we do these analysis, I mean, it's gaps of 500 million, 1 billion. Our, Our leader, I won't name the name, but our leader right now is $1.3 billion is what they need to fix all of their streets in their city right now. Um, (laughs) you know, and that comes out that comes, that comes out to like 65 million a year. And that particular city was spending 3 million a year on streets right now. Just to, that's the kind of, that's the gaps that we're
0: talking about. (laughs) You, You mentioned when you came back to North Texas, that was during the recession. And uh, you you said that Dallas-Fort Worth was just blowing and going, right? Like the recession didn't even stop us from these construction projects. But one thing that I know it did stop us on is the maintenance projects because I was doing budgets for cities at that time. So did that gap widen during that time period? Like We felt like we were doing great because we were still building stuff, but we actually were increasing that infrastructure gap because we stopped maintaining stuff and instead we just started building stuff.
1: Yeah. And I could... I mean, and this is we we talked when when I first met you guys, and we were getting into some of this. I, I was asking you guys some of these questions too, but but yeah, I mean, the the first thing, and we're seeing it right now with COVID budgeting too, right? I mean, one of the first things that gets cut is thou shalt not touch public safety. <laughs> That's like you know, although this new this new kind of discussion is getting some cities to rethink you know a little bit of that, <laughs> but but it's always you know, street maintenance is one of those. Oh, we'll get it later. We'll get it later. You know, it's it is the classic kick the can. Um, you know, we'll do it later. And when you, what I what I hope we can get enough data at some point to to start to really show. And you know, I don't want to say predict, but start to to look at is, you know, you hit a point in these neighborhoods where your your people they're they're living there and they're seeing okay, my house is getting a little older, my streets are starting to crack, my sidewalks are starting to bust up a little bit. And, you know, there's a, there's a decision point as a homeowner that you make of, am I going to reinvest in this home in this neighborhood, or am I going to sell cash out on my home that's been escalating and, you know, growing in value? Am I going to take that money somewhere else to a brand new, shiny new place? Um, And from the city side, you know, if you can't maintain the streets and the sidewalks, you're, you know, that neighborhood's going to, it's going to go. And, you know, and you hit this point that once it's, you know, the streets start to age and the wealth moves out like at the same point and it just spirals. And, you know, that's what I saw in a lot of older, older places. So yeah, I'm, I mean, when I look at these maintenance gaps in cities and and we just focus on streets just to simplify it. um, But you see cities that are doing, you know, they've got a, they've got a hundred million dollar gap and they're doing a million a year and it's just, it's not, that's It's just not enough. And so you hit a, you hit a wave that cities are going to have to, I don't know where the money's going to come from. And this is my biggest, and we may get into this, but this is my biggest concern with the suburban model is it's great right now when you're getting a great quality of life and new, new neighborhoods and new parks and new companies are coming to town. Um, but who's going to pay it when that, when that maintenance comes due, what, What amount of people are really going to be willing and able to pay that double, triple, quadruple property tax or other tax that it's going to take to to fix everything in the city?
0: Is that a metric that y'all look at, Um, reinvestment versus um, like leaving? Like, do you look at a neighborhood, for example, and see how many permits do we have for remodels versus how many properties are being sold and people are moving out of the neighborhood? Is that something that might have any value?
1: We haven't done that yet. Um, it absolutely would have value. I, I think in Texas, so many of our communities are still in growth mode that they're not quite thinking about maintenance mode yet. Um, you get to some of the older places. We're, we're working with Pasadena down by Houston right now, and they're, you know, they're an older kind of first ring uh, First-ring community out on the, the South side of Houston. They're, they're in full on maintenance mode. Um, and looking at how you can prioritize, that's something we are getting into is how you can prioritize infrastructure investments. So CIP projects, which, which ones can you do and where can you do them and how can you do them in a way that will close that gap, you know, the, the most. Um, but I did, you know, I did see it. Memphis, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, is the one I'd like to point out. Um, they just did a, a recent comp plan last year, maybe two years ago now, called Memphis 3.0, and their whole approach was basically shrinking the city. They they had extended, they had grown out too much. They didn't have the resources to to maintain and serve it all, so they they are shrinking intentionally, shrinking the size of their city to get it back to something that they can afford to maintain and serve, uh, and then they're um, they're encouraging. Codes and development incentives, everything for for vertical development. So to go up. So the fastest way to close your gap is stop going out and start going up.
2: The reality of it is, is that when I drive through client cities, one of the yeah. things that I really like to focus on, and and we deal with a lot of suburbs, right? It just is what it is, and and especially in Texas. Um, but you drive through these cities, and there are little things that we could change. Like, and I say pleasantly plump because if you get a diet. You don't just go try yep. to do everything at once. There are some baby steps to get there, even when you're still in growth mode, right? And and the one I always like to point out is I drive through a community that's got, you know, 70 by 120 lots or half acre lots, <laughs> and then I see a 33 to 36 foot wide road standard in that community. Right. They've literally built an extra lane because their residential sh- standard is is Man, wide. You were we could start really easy just by changing some of our road standards. So we don't have so much maintenance, right?
1: <laughs> that you just hit my biggest pet peeve of the, the intersection between my engineering background and all the fiscal work we do and planning. Um, how many suburban neighborhoods have you been into where the moms complain that they it's not safe for their kids to walk to the park or ride their bike because cars drive too fast. Dang near every one of them. Right. Um, When we look at fiscal, I mean, I'll throw a number out for you. Uh, A number, Mm -hmm. quick number that we use is a million dollars for an 11 foot lane mile for concrete, right? So an 11 foot wide lane of of concrete for a mile is going to cost you a million bucks. We have residential streets that are, like you said, Patrick, 31, 38, 43, 47 feet wide in some places. Um, you know, and they're designed that way so that in the one-off scenario, you know, where say you have cars parked on both sides of the street and you need two lanes of traffic to get through and you need an emergency service, you know, um, vehicle to get through. So we've, we've built these standards to allow for a worst case scenario, um, without thinking about the fiscal, <laughs> you know, the fiscal, of how are we going to pay for, for all of this stuff or the quality of life for the, the people that live on that street every day, um, you know, are they concerned about fire? You know, if my house catches on fire, do I want somebody to get here? Sure. Um, but if you ask me about the daily quality of life and, and safety in my neighborhood, and you ask me about the fiscal of, uh, side of what I would have to pay in property taxes to maintain when a, a city builds those wider streets everywhere, uh, my answer is going to change. Um, and I, I started asking this question in cities that we work with, the fire guys. Every city has an older part of town with narrower streets. And I'll, I'll say, okay, you know, if a house catches on fire in that part of town, what do you do? And they say, well, we still get there. You know, we just we will plow over any car in front of us or whatever. And, you know, if we have to pay to replace that car, we will. Uh, and then I'll say, okay, the cost of that car or cars that you had to plow through to get to that house is much cheaper than your city maintaining 31 foot wide streets all over your city. It, and it's not even close. And then you start to see heads explode of like, well, we never thought, you know, we never thought about that, but it's, again, it's, it's, it's kind of, what's the real kind of point of your community and what are you, what are you, what are you trying to get at? And I get it from the engineering side and other reasons of why we've built some of these standards, whether it's building codes, street design, they, they were all done, you know, for good reasons, but we've just gone too far to where we're, we're starting to lose the, um, you know, some of the things that make our, our neighborhoods you know, great. And, and again, you know, I I think there's different people want different things. And that's something that we always try to say, but, but we're building, we're building too much of patterns that aren't fiscally, they're not healthy and they're not fiscally sustainable either. And I I don't, we're going to have to, we're starting to see a, you know, a reverse, I think a reversal of that in some of the different kinds of neighborhoods that, that people want. Um, And there's city leaders, you know, guys, city managers and planners and zoning folks and um and engineers even engineers now that are willing to kind of look revisit some of those standards um either citywide or at least in different parts of the the city to get different you know different looks and feels of uh different neighborhoods
2: well the comment I've always made to a lot of our clients is like you don't have to rip the bandaid off all at once right you can just start yeah. with the little corners and and the and the reason I say that is you're not going to go from one acre lots to a high rise that's just not, that's just not going to happen all at once your politics aren't going to get there. There's a lot of complicated to get there, but there are some really simple things you can do, especially as you build a new neighborhood to make sure that you don't put yourself in the same position as you did with your old. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: and so I think it's extremely important when you look at those engineering standards to throw a little bit more like revenue and and return on investment logic into that, to have that conversation.
1: Yeah. One of, one of the analysis we'll do is, is on street projects and we'll just look at the return on investment, you know, of a, of a street, either current streets or, you know, or capital projects that cities are looking at and say, you know, just from a fiscal perspective, here's, here's the cost of the project. Here's the property tax, you know, the revenue that you're getting from the adjacent properties and based on your current tax rate and the current amount of, uh, of property tax revenue that you put towards streets, you know here's how long it would take to pay off that project and i mean we see 100 years 200 years and you know when you build streets like that all over your city you know there, there's just different ways we can show to kind of hammer that point home of like this stuff is going to take it's going to take twice as long to pay off this street than the street's even going to last um, you're almost getting further behind with every project that you do a lot of cities are chad a lot of every project they do they're i mean they're using valuable tax dollars and they're actually there when you build a street project, it's there. You're locking in that street and that pattern probably for, you know, another 20, 30, 40 years. Um, when we talk residential, different residential patterns, when, when you're in a downtown or more of an incremental, a place where you allow different zonings and uses to mix, that street could be there a lot longer. But, uh, but yeah, it's, we see a lot of these residential, uh, I mean, you said it third, third to a half acre lot. 31, 37 foot wide streets, cul-de-sacs, and it's just a it's an absolute money pit for a city. You know, unless the the other we haven't talked about this, but you can get to a model where the, the price point, the the home values are high enough that it does it does cover that stuff. And that we have some communities, you know, around North Texas that are in that position. Um but I I would I would argue that the percentage of people overall that are willing and able to pay for a half a million and up, you know, home. Those are, there's not as many of them, you know, as there, as there used to be. So and that I get that question all the time. It's like, well, what's the average home value that pencils out and makes it all work? And, and you guys know there's too many variables that that's, that's a loaded question. Um, but it is, it is much higher than people think it is. Well, so I, I want to flip kind of for you guys a little bit. And I mean, you, you guys both get, you know, the city finance, you know, angle, um, as well. And, you know, as we, when we met, sounds like we were both falling at following each other, you know, before, <laughs> before we met, but, um, what, what happened with, with you guys in your situation that, that got you thinking about these kind of things? Cause you know, for every one city manager, um, ACM finance director that I meet, that, that understands this, I meet 10 or meet another nine that it, it's not, it's not resonating with them yet. So what did what did you guys learn or see that that got you thinking about these things? Um, I would say,
0: and Patrick, you're welcome to j- jump in here, but you know the city that we worked in, we don't we didn't have a property tax, so everything that we did just by default was very keyed on: are we actually going to make money on this? And uh, and in large part, how can this help our retail uh, or you know sales tax base? Um, we talked a lot about. Uh, horizontal expansion and growth in order to to get our population numbers up. Um but you know that didn't really bring anything to the table because those people were already shopping in our city and we don't have a property tax so it's not increasing our revenues. So there's not a whole lot of value add from a sustainability standpoint. Um one big sort of thought experiment that that helped both our staff and also our our elected officials uh, was we you know we were looking at some um Multifamily, some uh, mixed use developments. And I think it was like 340 units. You know, it was about 1,000 people probably, plus some, uh, some commercial uh, development along with it. And I think uh, it totaled about maybe a tenth of a mile of actual roadway. Uh, basically, no infrastructure necessary for us to maintain. Uh, and we compared that with some neighborhoods that we had just finished, which had, uh, you know, 120, 140 houses. So less population, about 40 <laughs> times more infrastructure to maintain. Um, and so like, it, it's pretty easy. That, that's kind of an extreme example, uh, but the, you know it proves the point uh, that a little bit more density, even in a somewhat more rural community, uh, is going to be more sustainable over the long haul. And so we started to kind of shift that focus and, and look at ways that we can develop a little bit differently because at all of the single family residential property in that city is three quarter acre lots um so you know at some point something's got to give if we want to maintain a situation where we don't have a property tax indefinitely
2: yeah for me uh similar experience it was a little and Chad and I really haven't talked about this but we we had a political issue come up in uh in our community where we had a really high end community that was in our ETJ uh that wanted to annex and we had a community that was to the south of us that kind of saw all the revenue we were generating uh, and and they wanted to merge, and so we had these two things on the table, kind of at the same time. And as a city manager at the time, I was of the standard uh, thought process of bigger is better, grow, 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 everything is great. Um, but we had that issue where we don't have a property tax, so we were going to bring this big gated community that has million dollar homes in it. Um, but why? is the question, right? Why take over their roads? Why take over their sewer? We already had their utility system, right? Um, and, and I kind of took the standard city manager approach and Chad took the really financial, um, you know, we had some Are you really, saying I
0: actually changed your mind on something? You changed
2: my <laughs> mind on this. Yeah. So, so th- I think that's really where, um, you know, I don't even think strong towns was a, was really a major thing at that point. I mean, this is like 2014. I hadn't read anything on it yet. But I started to do research. I started to look at this, and and Chad's comment on these people were coming to our city anyways to shop. Why did we need to maintain the roads if they're out in the county? That's what really started kind of the the mindset for me when I started to think about how should we build and where should we build. Um, And then we rolled Mm -hmm. into some strategic planning with our community, um, where we had a you know still does today has a very intelligent city council, um, and we started to make the fiscal. Arguments to them about where we needed to go and how we needed to go there, Um, and and that's that's really where it changed for me. And then we got into the sales tax side, where you know we we kind of lucked into that. I mean, we had a community that had sales tax. We wanted to know where it was coming from because we wanted to know what uh, what could hit us if if we lost it, right? We wanted to know what businesses we should be working with. If anybody was doing bad, so we got into that. And then we started realizing uh, as we started collecting more cities uh, in in Zach tax, we started realizing really quick, okay we we're going after the wrong users like we're going after a business that everybody thinks is like a great business go after that business and and we're like well, wait a second i can go get a 1000 square foot user that does the same amount in sales tax as that 40,000 square foot big box that's going to be a problem for me there down the road go. right and so th- that that kind of all mushed together about the same time and 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 that's really where i think we started to think differently uh, but i give chad a lot of credit for that chad would, chad challenges um, and sometimes, um, uh, mm-hmm. vocally,
0: I like to play the contrarian.
2: That's correct. Yes, he does.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, just the, just getting to know you guys a little bit. I could definitely see how this, uh, this interaction would, would work <laughs> in the, the city, the city environment. There are many <laughs>
2: podcast conversations that have not made the airways. Uh, <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> But I, I will. Uh, no, I. I yeah. in this. I mean, I think um, you guys are onto something too. With exactly the same thing with sales tax. Of there is, you know, there there's a way for our communities to generate, you know, to to be more efficient in terms of revenue generation, um, and the cost to you know to do that. And you know, it does. It it it's residential. It's commercial. It's all. It's all a mix of things. But I think the, uh, you know, the the thing I've seen that really helps move policymakers especially forward is being able to quantify and show these service costs that are coming and start to ask the question of you know at some point these costs are going to come due and you know think about your think about someone in your shoes 10 or 15 years from now you know do they you know who's going to want to be in that spot that has to go to their community and say we got to raise taxes you know by double or something to you know so Anything we can do—that—that's really what we've been trying to do with—with with our podcast and our the workshops that we do and, and a lot of the the education work—is to to help give you know more data, more points, more images, you know, more stories um, that that make you know city leaders and and council members more more comfortable having this conversation and taking it taking it to the residents because you know I, I do see um, you know we're where you can have, where you put some of this analysis and these numbers and data in front of the community, you can have more, more transparent and more productive conversations about what kind of community, what kind of community do you want to be? Do you want to be a disposable suburb that's great for 10 years and then you tank, you know, or do you want to be somewhere that's, that's around and affordable? Um, you know, and, and if so, then there's all these incremental things. Like you said, Patrick, there's all these little things that can be done year over year that close that gap over over time and don't don't require a huge you know a huge tax um a huge tax increase
0: Yeah, kevin you talked about um the property tax values per acre for smaller lots um and your analysis can typically be as high or higher per acre we found the same thing to be true for sales tax you can i mean you can have a big 20 acre walmart where you know three quarters of it is used for a parking lot but you can generate the same amount of revenue per acre in inline retail where some of that parking can be shared you have you know less infrastructure that you actually need to support that development and a lot of cities they they want those big splashy developments but you don't necessarily need those in order to generate the same amount of revenue
1: yeah i i i mean it it does tend to follow the same trend that with you know with property tax the more the more people you put in an area, typically, the more you know, the more revenue you're going to see. And I think sales tax is the same way. You, the more people you put in an area, the more commercial demand you're you're going to have. And so, and when you look at, at you know community identity and placemaking and active living and uh, those kind of things, I I feel like you know if it's if it's done right, you can you can get a lot of those same kind of daily needs and and the things that are um, you know our, our residents and employers are looking for you can get those in a different form that's that's much more productive in terms of revenue generation and it's much more efficient in terms of cost to serve it
2: so i want to end with this question um what is the current fiscal shape during covid of our cities what are you seeing what are we seeing
1: wow um i i think it's it's been interesting because. In Texas, the online sales tax has been, I think for, and you guys know this probably better than I do, but what I'm hearing that online sales tax has been a lifesaver for a lot of places of mm-hmm. the, everybody's shopping on Amazon while we're holed up in our, in our homes. And, and now the, the local municipalities can get that revenue versus the, the way it was before, before, um, I do feel like, um, a significant, uh, you know, a, a much a much larger percentage of cities are having a, a more serious conversation about um just the the fragility of the the way they've been doing it and reliance on sales tax and how quickly that could go away. Um and looking at property taxes, you know, property tax is the most stable predictable revenue source uh for property tax states and cities that have property tax. I think that's the most stable predictable source, you know, a, a revenue source a city has. Um I have talked with some cities that, you know, they're not, they don't think they're going to collect as much of the property taxes they have in past years, which, you know, most years it's 95% or more that they get. I think there, there's some worry that they might not get as much this year, but um, there's, there's more awareness, I think of just the fragility um, and, and being able to have a, a balance between property and sales tax. Um, but I'd still, I'm not happy with how many cities are, are don't know what their infrastructure funding liabilities are i think that is the street street funding in particular residential street funding to be even more specific that's just going to overwhelm a lot of cities in texas in the next probably 10 years and we're just not planning for it the way we need to be
0: do you think that this uh this sustainability issue is primarily uh an expenditure problem primarily a revenue problem or some combination. Like, what do you think is the more approximate problem that cities are going to have to deal with? They're going to have to find a way to, to generate new revenue, or are they going to have to find a way to scale back their liabilities.
1: I think every city is a little different, but it's going to be a combination. But I, I would say I think more cities are going to be they're going to have the conversation of raising taxes or scaling back services um, will be the first level, um, and then beyond that, it's going to be you know geographically. Uh, I mean, if you look at some older, older places in other parts of the country, there's geographic shrinking, you know, where they're contracting their service area. Uh, there's some cities that are just letting, they're intentionally letting cities or, or letting streets go back to gravel. They're just not made, they've made a conscious decision to like, we're not going to repave these. We're just going to let them go. Uh, but I, I, don't think we're there in Texas yet. I think if, if we, if we're smarter about Um, we still have resources that if we put them into the right things, you know, especially new development, put new development in that is definitely not making it worse, right? Any, any new development should at least pay for itself, if not generate a bump that can help cover some, some of these other liabilities that we got to catch up on. Um, I also feel like there's a lot of people out there that if you went to them and, and, you know, we've helped do this in some communities, but if you have a, a conversation with them and say, you know. If, you know, would you be willing to pay for a street fee or, you know, a little bit extra property tax if, if it can go towards intentional street maintenance program, a lot of people would say yes. Um, they just, um, I don't think cities are, are communicating in the, in the right way and and asking in the right way. Um, but it's, I think it's going to get harder and harder. Cities are already, it's already hard, hard to balance the budget (laughs) as you guys know, and it's just going to get harder.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. Well, hey Kevin, I want to thank you for coming on uh, cast with us. It, it's been an awesome conversation. Before we go though, can you tell people how to reach out to you? Talk about your blog a little bit. Uh, your your podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Verdunity.com. Uh, Verdunity.com, V e r d u uh, n i t y. That's our main company company site. The Go Cultivate blog is on there. Um, our podcast is called the Go Cultivate Podcast. Um, we've uh, we've been at that for a couple of years now. Uh, that's been. Um, surprisingly way more successful than I thought it was going <laughs> to be when we first started it. It's a really good podcast. Well, thank you.
2: It's very good. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, we had you guys on, so hopefully, you know, you, <laughs> 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 but uh, um, yeah, uh, that's, uh, and then Kevin at rodinity is my, uh, my email. So um, we're uh, just like you guys trying to, to educate, help, uh, help cities use data to make smarter, smarter decisions and uh, just increase awareness on this whole sustainability issue and, and how to close it incrementally over time with uh with the resources that you have
2: yeah i just want to put one more plug in before we go because I, I just want to talk about you know we talked to a lot of different cities about the fiscal analysis side uh and and they start asking us questions about well how can we engineer it differently how can we plan it differently you know kevin and you're always my first stop to ask questions to you're always the first person i tell them to reach out to uh i just think you're changing that game you're a disruptor in the field i congratulate you guys for what y'all have been able to do uh, I think it's a great thing for uh, specifically where we work for Texas cities. Uh, and so, you know, really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. I know it's not easy to be a disruptor. We're in that same boat, uh, <laughs> but uh, obviously it's, it's a needed thing in, in, in our industry.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that. It's um, it fighting the good fight, right?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Hey, hey thanks guys uh, for joining us on Zatcast. We'll have some information in the show notes for you guys. Uh, if you have any questions about virginity or Kevin uh, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thanks guys.